and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. Today we're exploring OPAT, the final frontier. These are the experiences of the OPAT pharmacists in their continuing mission to explore strange new dosing strategies, to seek out new ways to provide care, to boldly go where no pharmacist has gone before. I'm Jesse Ortwine, and I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. I'm excited to introduce our amazing panel of OPAT pharmacists, starting with Mira Mehta, infectious diseases specialist from West Virginia University Medicine. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. Next, we have Keenan Ryan, who is a pharmacist clinician from the University of New Mexico Hospital. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Our next two panelists share a first name, but come to us with different experiences. Monica Mahoney is a clinical pharmacy specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, everyone. And Monica Donnelly is an infectious diseases pharmacist specialist at the University of California Davis Health System and ID professor at Toro University, California College of Pharmacy. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today. Given the rising cost of hospitalization and also the fact that just being hospitalized is a total bummer, I think there's definitely a lot of interest in using OPAT to get stable patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. We have a fairly large panel with us today, which is awesome. And I think this really reflects the variable OPAT structure and clinical pharmacist role. Can you guys talk a little bit about what your OPAT programs look like in your role within the program? So I created our OPAT program at WVU Medicine in 2017, and our OPAT program operates as a consult service. So our team currently consists of a part-time ID physician, three full-time ID pharmacists, an OPAT nurse, and then a part-time administrative assistant. We have anywhere from 160 to 200 active patients on our daily list, and we receive anywhere from five to 17 new consults a day. Surrounding physicians consult us when they know a patient will need to be discharged on IV antibiotics. The really cool thing about our program is that the pharmacists are at the forefront of the program. The consults come to us, the attendings page us, we review the patients while they're admitted, make antibiotic recommendations to the primary teams, we leave the consult notes in the patient's chart spelling out the specific antibiotic plan and labs needed for monitoring. We ensure the correct antibiotics are prescribed on discharge and fix any errors we need to to ensure a smooth transitions of care. We then follow outpatient labs at least once weekly and implement interventions to manage any adverse effects that patients encounter in the outpatient setting. We do discuss all of our cases with our ID physician and she also helps if we have complex cases that need physician expertise. Our nurse helps with pick line issues and calling outside facilities for labs and then our admin assistant helps us with the labs and also outcome measures as well. At the University of New Mexico, we have um, a part-time ID physician, a full-time um, infectious disease nurse practitioner, three clinic nurses, one of which is our clinic coordinator who kind of directs the nursing staff care from there, um, and then myself who's a pharmacist clinician. Um, we see patients that have to be on IV antibiotics for greater than 10 days, and we have a mandatory um, ID consult is required before we'll see any patient just to make sure that um, everything is in order before they leave the hospital. Usually once the ID consult team signs off, our nurse practitioner follows them inpatient for two days or will be in clinic two days. Um, once the patient's actually discharged, 
Um, I try and review every patient, make sure their orders are appropriate, make sure all the cultures have finalized. If repeat imaging is ordered, I try and start those um, processes going at that time. Um, then I also call uh, any of the skilled nursing facilities or home infusion pharmacies to verify that the medication orders are correct. Um, and then lastly, I try and actually call and counsel any patient that's at home to make sure they're aware of any of the monitoring parameters for their specific medications or adverse events um, with the line. Uh, our clinic is a little different because in the state of New Mexico, we have a pharmacist clinician license. So I actually uh, manage patients directly uh, akin to a way a physician assistant would. So um, I manage half of the, of the patients in the OPAC clinic and our nurse practitioner manages the other half. And we have a supervising physician we can contact um, if needed. Um, and we actively have maybe uh, 75 patients um, currently on IV antibiotics. And then um, we do some of the suppression therapy. So we have any number of patients who are currently on suppression while we're getting them um, reestablished with the primary care. And that clinical pharmacist role is really cool and I'm jealous. I wish more of us had it. Um, but here at Beth Israel, uh, so our OPAT program, um, we've definitely ramped up who is involved in our program the last couple of years. And our current makeup right now is one ID physician, uh, one OPAT nurse practitioner, and she's actually a doctor of uh, nursing practice, two clinic nurses, one administrative assistant, and then myself, um, I am only half uh, FTE in the OPAT clinic. Uh, so similarly, our patients, they need to be discharged on at least two weeks of uh, IV antibiotics in order to be eligible for our OPAC clinic, uh, and they must be seen by ID before discharge and actively enrolled into our program. We do have a standardized intake form that has the information that we need in order for them to be enrolled. Uh, we have follow-up appointments scheduled for them within one week of inpatient discharge. Uh, we have standardized weekly lab draws that we have protocolized. And then specifically what my role is, is because it's a split position, uh, I spend about two days per week where I review all inpatients that are enrolled in OPET but not yet discharged. I try to make it up to the floor to talk to them before they leave, to talk them through what the OPET program is, talk about what medications are going to be going on, try to optimize therapy if we can, if there's a different drug or a different duration or a different route that we can use. Um, and then I'll see patients in follow-up in clinic as well. Um, and then like I'm sure a lot of us are in involved in our uh, nurses were triage abnormal labs uh, from our weekly uh, lab draws. So I'll be involved in any changes that need to happen there as well. Hi, this is Monica Donnelly. Uh, at our program, we have a dedicated ID physician, uh, a nurse who handles all of the labs and appointments, a huge team of discharge planners and dedicated seven day a week ID pharmacist coverage. This means that we're not only covering the OPAT patients, but also the ID consult service in conjunction. What we have that uh, we're very fortunate to have is a hospital policy that requires all patients, uh, pediatric and adult, leaving the hospital must by policy be reviewed by an ID pharmacist. We look to see that appropriate labs have been ordered for safety, by protocol, we can order labs, we can change antimicrobial doses. We do require a formal consult for all pediatric patients, and I would say that approximately half of our adults receive a formal ID consult, although it's not required. If a patient will be leaving the hospital on more than two weeks of therapy, we do strongly encourage that consult to take place. 
uh, we continue to follow patients after discharge, mainly our ID physician and our nurse, but the ID pharmacist is still um, involved uh, three times a week rounds where we review uh, antimicrobial levels and manage any uh, side effects that may have occurred and um, help with antimicrobial changes. Yeah, I think, you know, my program is is very similar to what everyone else has described. We have um, one FTE um, infectious diseases pharmacist. We have, we're very lucky to have an OPAT case manager who focuses solely on the discharges of the OPAT patients. We have a large team of OPAT nurses. Uh, there are five of them, two advanced practice practitioners, and then five to six clinic physicians. We don't have any physicians dedicated to the program on the inpatient side. Um, I think our program is unique in that a large proportion of our patients are unfunded, so they are actually taught by our nursing team how to self-administer their antibiotics. The majority of these we do as IV pushes, um, but the really cool thing is for the meds that can't be given as IV push because of stability issues, um, we teach them to self-administer via gravity, so they just hang the, the IV bag above their head um, and count the drips in the drip chamber, and this kind of serves as a surrogate um, for the infusion rate. We don't require ID consult or ID physician review prior to discharge. Um, so the ID pharmacist is tasked with ensuring that the treatment plan is appropriate and recommending alternate uh, plans, PO switches, different durations or additional workups. We're also responsible for ordering discharge meds, labs and imaging, and then communicating with our outpatient compounding pharmacist who provides all of the IV antibiotics for our unfunded patients. Um, in listening to everybody describe their program, it really sounds like um, you know everyone has some similar, some um, different responsibilities, and all these programs are really unique and diverse. But one of the things that seemed to be a recurring theme was the wide variety of team members that everyone has working with you. Um, and as we all know, we can't always be the ones doing everything. Um, Keenan, can you touch on the multidisciplinary collaboration necessary for a program to be successful? Uh, yeah, I think um, it's kind of clear that this needs to be a team effort. Uh, I, as everyone said, there's obviously um, ID physicians, uh, other um, ID advanced practice providers, as well as nursing involved, um, and they all play a different role, right? I'm not an expert. Um, and how to change a pick dressing. I definitely need the nursing staff to help me with that and do that um, much better than I can. Um, I think it's important to remember that a lot of these patients would be still in the hospital if it wasn't for an OPAT system, which means they have a high requirement for care. And so um, making sure we engage the nursing staff, case management, even the physicians to help diagnose um, if there's new um, issues that, that arise, this is all important to providing best care. Um, also, at least in our program, we require weekly follow-ups, which usually means we're helping to drive the care because we're going to see the patients most often. So this is an opportunity um, to get the other uh, disciplines involved in patient's care. These, are, these infections are often um, the downstream consequences of other diseases like uncontrolled diabetes or injection drug use. Um, really addressing some of those underlying disease states is important. And also, I would say, part of your multidisciplinary approach. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Having a multidisciplinary team is absolutely critical to the success of an OPAT program. Um, however, we know that pharmacists are expensive and most institutions won't just give you this help. Um, Mira, I know that you have experience with growing an OPAT program from scratch. 
Can you touch on how we can justify more positions and demonstrate return on investment for these programs? Absolutely. So when I started the program in 2017, it was just me full time and then my part time ID physician. And as you can imagine, it is a lot to follow 200 patients between two people. Positions aren't created based on volume alone, however, you have to be able to prove your worth and how much money your program is saving to justify positions. And so I've come up with these tips for anyone out there looking to secure some more FTEs for their OPAT program. Um, the first thing is document everything. Document, document, document every intervention, safety interventions, dose reductions, antibiotic switches, adverse event management, efficacy interventions interventions such as dose optimizations, simplifications, IV to PO switches, pick line avoidance, readmission avoidance. Document in a way that is easy to retrospectively collect data and count up the numbers. If you contributed to getting a patient discharged earlier by doing a prior authorization or helping to get outpatient IV antibox approved for cost or whatever reason, keep track of the number of inpatient days that you saved. And then and pull 30-day readmission data and length of stay data. And you can reach out to your hospital's Department of Quality Outcomes for help if needed. That's actually what I did. And in our case, we were able to compare the readmission and length of stay data from before our program was created to after our program was implemented. And then take all of the data to your hospital's finance department so they can help you assign a dollar value to your interventions. In our case, the cost savings were calculated based on costs avoiding from inpatient days saved, revenue generated from filling rooms with new patients, savings from decreasing antimicrobial costs, and then savings from pick line avoidance as well. And I was able to help um, collect the savings data, and then this was presented to our financial operations committee. And with this, I was able to justify and create four new jobs. So that created the two full-time OPAT pharmacists the nurse and the admin assistant. Now our OPAT pharmacists also do a little bit of stewardship, so it might help to have multiple roles of the pharmacist to help push those positions through. Wow, four jobs is incredible. Um, you know, OPAT pro programs probably do pay for themselves within just the first few years, um, but I, I agree you do have to be able to actually show this data. Uh, I know that when we looked at these outcomes after the first five years of our program, we uh, saved an estimated uh, at least $10 million annually in direct costs. Uh, given this huge cost savings potential, it seems like it would be easy for administrators to want to support this type of program if you're able to provide the data in a meaningful way. Um, I want to switch gears right now. Once you're able to cost justify a program and get it up and running, I want to talk about the types of patients that you would see um, on OPAT or who'd qualify to follow up in an OPAT clinic. Could each of you take a moment to discuss your patient populations? Uh, do you see specific types of infections more often? Do you follow um, specific types of patients or specific service lines only? Yeah, this is Monica Mahoney. Um, so we only see adults in our service because we don't have any pediatrics in our hospital. Um, the vast majority of the patients that we follow in OPET are going to be bone and joint, um, you know, osteomyelitis, prosthetic joint infections, and then some more complicated skin infections. But we do see some endocarditis, bloodstream infections, and then complicated intra-abdominal infections. Um, 
we don't discriminate. All patient types are eligible as long as they're going to be on IV therapy for more than two weeks after discharge. Um, although every once in a while we have gotten a complex oral patient that's enrolled as well just because they need increased follow-up and monitoring. Hi, this is Monica Donnelly. We see all patients. We do require a formal consult for our pediatric patients. Uh, and then for adults, if they're going to be on a duration of therapy that's longer than two weeks, then we require or recommend a, a formal consult and follow-up at our ID clinic. As you know, in infectious diseases, anything longer than two weeks, we consider a long time. So endocarditis, osteo, where you're looking more at six weeks of therapy, those are definitely the patients we're going to target, but we, we will see all patients. Hey, this is Keenan. We only follow adult patients. We have a separate pediatric infectious disease group for our, our little ones. Um, patients who are going to receive IV antibiotics for greater than 10 days are eligible. Uh, like Monica M., we do occasionally take a complicated oral regimen if needed. Um, any patient can be enrolled into our OPAT program, but they do have to have an inpatient ID consult before they discharge. So it creates a natural um, barrier that we use to make sure all the safety measures are in place before a patient discharges. The most common things we see are um, bone and joint infections, diabetic foot infections, bacteremia, endocarditis, and maybe some intra-abdominal infections. Most of our prosthetic joint infections, I will say, are usually traumatic in nature because our elective procedures are done at our sister hospital. At WVU, we follow all patients discharged on IV antibiotics. That includes both adults and pediatrics, and we follow them no matter where they go, whether they go home, skilled nursing facility to LTAC rehab facility infusion center. We've even followed patients that have gone back to jail, and we follow them all whether they have an ID consult or not, and we follow all sorts of infection types. This is great. So it sounds like there are very few um exclusions for, for who would be eligible for OPAT follow-up. But a particular group I want to talk about are those patients who have current IV drug use or patients with a history of IV drug abuse. Do you guys follow these patients? Um, and if, if not, what do, you, what do you do? How do you, um, I guess, deal with their need for long-term antibiotics? Definitely. So at WVU, we have a comprehensive inpatient patient service and unit dedicated specifically to treating infections in people who inject drugs. And that's because in West Virginia, we have a very large population of people that engage in injection drug use and substance use disorder. Um, this service, interestingly enough, was being created around the same time I was making my OPAT program. So I've actually been able to be involved in this service since it started. It is led by an infectious diseases physician, but it's also comprised of a multidisciplinary disciplinary team, which includes myself and OPAT, behavioral medicine, addiction specialists, pain management, cardiac surgery, PAs, nursing, physical therapy, care management, and social workers. And the service is designed to treat patients as a whole. We're not just treating their infection, but also their addiction. And it allows for patients to participate in support groups and counseling therapy as well. And our OPAT team plays an integral role on this team. We do round with this service and we follow the entire service whilst the patients are inpatient um, and we provide antibiotic recommendations in addition to monitoring the patients. Additionally, we also help determine whether a person 
person who injects the drugs is suitable to be discharged on IV antibiotics. And so some of the considerations for this include in the patient's involvement in addiction therapy. So if a patient is admitted and they're going to therapy at our hospital, we might want to keep them inpatient so they can continue to benefit from that therapy. Um, however, depending on their progress, there may be some outside facilities providing addiction counseling too, and so they may benefit from, from outpatient facilities in which we can discharge them too. And we also think about the time it's been since their last use and then whether they're high, medium, or low risk of substance misuse. And we definitely get behavioral medicines help to help determine the risk of this. And then we also think about the social situation they have at home too. In 2019, our, this service discharged 108 patients on IV antimicrobials, and this actually resulted in 1,027 inpatient days saved. So that did save a tremendous amount of money. Um, when we think about where patients are discharged, um, we've discharged them to rehab facilities, skilled nursing facilities, LTACs, um, home with home infusion and home health in certain cases. Um, we also have our own rehab facility on site, so the Center of Hope and Healing. There's also long-term residential facilities and group homes that will allow patients to have home health and home infusion. There's a place called Jacob's Ladder in West Virginia. And sometimes if we can't discharge someone with a PICC line, we will send them to an infusion center for once daily infusions. Um, one challenge is that a lot of home health agencies won't accept our patients who inject drugs when we try to send them home. So that's a challenge that we try to work through. Um, but once these patients are discharged, our OPAT team continues to monitor them till they've completed their antibiotics. And we also help choose the optimal regimen, which sometimes includes using dalbavancin or highly bioavailable oral antibiotics too, depending on the situation. So we definitely really do play an important role in the care of this population at our institution. Wow, Mira, that's fantastic. I wish more places were doing uh, some of the things that you guys are. But I think, unfortunately, it's still practice to commonly exclude a lot of patients who inject drugs and OPAT. There was a recent survey uh, in 2018 of ID physicians in uh, Open Forum Infectious Disease that showed the majority of persons who inject drugs are referred to either rehabs or finish their course of IV therapy as inpatients. And this is a huge drain on our resources. There's emerging data that supports the treatment of persons who inject drugs as outpatients as long as we select the correct population to uh, enroll in these programs. Uh, there was one study that linked homelessness and uh, injection drug use as risk factors for failing OPAT, but a limitation of this is that if patients were lost to follow-up, they were considered OPAT failures, and not surprisingly, homelessness was also linked to loss to follow-up. Uh, there was a recent uh, NPR publication that highlighted OPAT in persons who inject drugs, and actually Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston is one of the pioneering hospitals that's enrolling patients with drug use into OPAT. However, they have very strict criteria as to who they allow, and that includes a stable living situation with support, taking medications for addiction treatment, and then weekly visits to the bridge clinic, so frequent follow-up with healthcare providers. Um, as you mentioned, I think another intriguing area is using long-acting glycopeptides like dalbavancin and aritavancin to treat gram-positive infections. Um, however, these, great, these drugs are great because you don't need central lines for them. You can administer them peripherally. Um, there's actually a review from Colorado 
that showed that even if dalbavancin or aritavancin are started inpatient, then these drugs were cost-effective and actually saved money by facilitating patient discharge. So I think there's a lot that we could be doing in this patient population. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'm glad we're starting to see more programs look at different ways to tease out the lower risk patients from the population. Um, we're actually doing something similar, working on a project now in collaboration with the addiction psychiatrists to stratify our non-IV drug users by risk category and potentially sending the lower risk patients home with OPAT. Um, so I can definitely see something like this being used in the population of persons who inject drugs in the future as well. Well, gang, we've touched on a lot of the general foundational information for getting an OPAT clinic up and running. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today, but be sure to listen in to the next episode to hear more about OPAT challenges and best practices and how our panelists are utilizing new antibiotics and literature in their practices. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Ilya Rybakov, Aaron McCreary, and Travis Jones for their help putting this episode together. You are listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. 